welcome to the Rise Rooted Podcast. If you're a mom who feels like you've lost yourself along the way, you have landed in the right spot. I'm your host, Katherine Middlebrooks, founder of BRB Yoga and postpartum health expert who has helped thousands of moms rebuild their bodies after baby. Each week, join me and my guests as we explore ways to create health in mind and body so that you can live a life you love. Hello, hello, everyone. I am very excited to share today's interview with Dr. Lindsay Harper with you. We are going to dive deep into all topics related to sexual desire and libido in women, and I think it's going to blow your mind. So before we dive into it, let me take a moment to introduce Dr. Harper. Dr. Lindsay Harper is the founder and CEO of Rosie, a women's health technology company that connects women who have sexual health concerns with hope, community, and research-backed solutions. She has been named Forbes Top 53 Women Disrupting Healthcare, People Newspapers 20 Under 40, a top innovator in North Texas for 2020, and a Dallas Business Journal Top Women in Technology honoree. She is an associate professor of OBGYN for Texas A&M College of Medicine, a fellow of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and a fellow of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Dr. Harper completed OBGYN residency in 2011 at Baylor Scott and White in Texas, and now works there as an OBGYN hospitalist. So this woman knows her stuff, (laughs) and you'll see that's very apparent as we dive into the conversation. The thing that I appreciated most about this conversation was that it really normalized so many of the experiences that women have in their sexual lives, Uh, having periods where they just feel uninterested in sex, um, feeling like they don't necessarily feel desire, right? You'll hear how uh, Dr. Harper talks about how often for women, we have to have our body aroused before we even get interested in sex. So we cover all of that and more. And I think that you will be so happy to hear just how normal your experience is, and also be really happy to hear about the resources that are now available to you to help you increase your sexual desire if that is something you feel is important and would bring more quality of life to your life. So let's dive into the conversation. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited too. I'm really excited to dive into this topic. So today I want to focus our conversation on low libido and decreased sexual desire. This is such a common issue among women and I believe moms perhaps even more so than just women in general. And you have created a beautiful and extremely useful app Rosie, that is so helpful and is going to help so many women with just this issue. So before we dive in, can you just share a little bit about Rosie and what propelled you to make it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so my background is that I'm an OBGYN and I love practice. I love helping women with whatever's going on. And I thought I was you know, pretty decent at pregnancy and menopause and surgery and contraception and STIs and all of these things that we're trained to deal with. But um, really on a daily basis in my private practice, my patients were sharing with me, you know what, I love my husband, love my partner, but I don't care if we ever have sex again. 
And this was patient after patient after patient. And what I was noticing is that really a few things, each of them felt like maybe it was just them, like no one else, none of their friends were, were having these problems. And that, that made them feel really isolated and ashamed and, and really just broken. Like those were the, those were the emotions along with that. And the other thing that I was noticing was really how many women were sharing this with me. It wasn't one a week. It was literally multiple times a day. And so I started to think, you know what, why do I not know what to do for these women? Why do I feel completely confident in all these other areas, but I'm not really sure how to handle these really frequent complaints. And so you know, as most women do, I thought, I thought something was, I thought it was my fault. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I had a baby in residency. Maybe I just like missed that day. Like, you know, maybe they taught this and I missed it. And then, so I started asking around and I'm like, what do you guys do? You know, all my doctor friends and everyone's like, oh, if I hear about this one more time, like everybody's just frustrated. And the, so I started to kind of put two and two together. And I think it's because the, the volume of patients that we see with this problem and the lack of resources that we have for them. And so I was like, all right, well, where do I learn more about this? Surely someone's asked these questions and is thinking about these things. So I found a medical society called ISWISH, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And there I learned so many amazing things, like 38% of women describe that they have low sexual desire. So that's 31 million women in the United States, right? Holy crap. That's crazy. Yeah. And that 49% of women have some sexual problem or complaint. And so when I realized that, I'm like, what in the world? Why do we have documentation that all these women are suffering? We actually know of evidence-based interventions. But on the other hand, women's health doctors are not trained how to treat these things, right? When we think about male sexual dysfunction, we all know that urologists treat erectile dysfunction and any other, you know, low testosterone, all the problems. There's commercials for them. There's funding for them. There's all the things. But then when we think about women's sexual health, who treats that? I think that most people think it's OBGYNs, but in fact, we unfortunately are not trained. And that's not really OBGYN's fault. It's like society and medicine as a whole, undervaluing, you know, women's sexuality, women's sexual dysfunction. So my passion, this is the most long-winded answer to your question, but my passion is really connecting women and their healthcare providers with these evidence-based resources for sexual health. I don't want another woman told to go drink a glass of wine or go on vacation, right? Those are, that's not legitimate. And I want, you know, all of these resources to be readily available. And that's really what Rosie's meant to be. I think especially the piece of really normalizing this issue, you know, you mentioned that you were speaking to so many women who felt broken. And that's very similar to the women that I work with, too, who are dealing with these postpartum body issues. Their body is not working the way they want it to. I think so much of that feeling of brokenness simply comes from thinking you are the only person dealing with this issue. And the beauty of your app is that it just shows, one, how common these issues are and also gives really useful tips for what to start doing to shift out of that feeling of brokenness. Yay. Yes. I I think that just like you were saying, the isolation and shame that go with not talking about this stuff really amplifies the problem. And if we can just, you know, shed that culture of secrecy, then we can go a long way to kind of getting where we want to go. So you and I definitely share that passion. Yes, we're meant to meet. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So can you just define for us low libido? Because I think that that is a hard thing for people to get a sense of like, well, is this normal? Or is it something that actually is problematic? 
Yeah. And you know, the only person that can answer that is the woman herself, right? So there's no scientific definition. It's like, oh, if you want sex less than three times in whatever, whatever, you know what I mean? Then you've got low libido. That's not what it, that's not how it goes. And actually I get that question all the time. Like how many times a week or a month or a year should I be having sex? And there's no normal time, right? So the time is what works for you personally and what works for you in your partnership. And so if you as a woman or really even as a man were to say, hey, my level of desire was once, you know, A, and now it's B, and that decrease is causing me distress for whatever reason, whether it's personal distress, relational distress, then we could say, you know, qualitatively that that's low sexual desire or decreased libido. So it's really a patient report or a woman report of what's going on in her life. There's no quantitative or number type measurement. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to know as well. I think people will think, oh, well, I only want to have sex once a week, so something must be wrong with you. But if that's always the way you felt, then that's everyone's on a spectrum, right? A range of totally higher. Yeah. Yes. And if that's working for you and in your partnership, then there is nothing wrong. Like there's not if it's, you know, if that's great, then let's don't let's don't be sad. We can, of course, always work on pleasure and, you know, understanding our bodies better, but we're not going to, we're not here to tell you something's wrong with you if nothing's wrong, for sure. Right. Now, many of the women that I do work with are new-ish moms who aren't sleeping, their life has been turned upside down, many of them are breastfeeding very frequently, so those are a lot of outside factors, too, that could also be contributing to a lack of desire. Is there a way to distinguish between kind of what is just a normal dip and decline based on life circumstances and what is something that is more of a serious long-term issue? Or is that not a helpful distinction? So first of all, the number one sort of killer of desire is stress. And I can't remember a more stressful time in my life than especially the birth of my first child. Like your world is so rocked and turned upside down a lot, like your external circumstances and your internal circumstances, right? And the, your relationship circumstances. So I think that whenever a woman encounters such a just world, you know, seismic shift, she can expect a result on her desire a hundred percent. I think that it's much like, you know, taking care of your body physically, taking care of your mental health. We have to work towards our goals and we just have to remember to keep sort of our relationship goals on the map, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, especially as new moms, and I've experienced this, you know, you have this little tiny being for whom we feel completely and totally responsible and all else just washes away, right? Taking care of ourselves, taking care of our bodies, taking care of our relationships. And it's my, um, you know, really message and goal that women should add to their list of, you know, things to prioritize their relationships as well. Because these little ones, you know, if all goes well, they grow up and they leave us, right? And that's great. That's what we want. But in the meantime, we can't sacrifice our own sense of, you know, well-being and sexuality and our relationship, you know, for that, for that, you know, little person. I think it's, it's definitely part of building this whole ecosystem and intimacy and preserving the relationship with your partner is definitely a top priority and should be remembered as such. So it's not that all of it has to be done at the same time or one is more important than the other, but it makes on the rate, you know, intimacy still needs to be a blip on the radar as well. So I think it's a definitely natural occurrence for all of that stuff to just be rocked, uh, especially postpartum, but that, you know, slowly we work back towards bringing those things into our lives. 
Yeah. Is there a role of breastfeeding hormones? What is the role that that plays on interest and desire? For sure. So, I mean, you know, there's so many things with breastfeeding, right? So number one is really the hormonal shift. So whenever we're breastfeeding, especially during the first six months, our estrogen is just really taking a nosedive, just like it would be in menopause. And so sexual desire as a result of that is much lower. And also vaginal lubrication um, can be a big problem. So even when you, even if you feel like a random, you know, like you're like, oh, let's do this, let's have sex it can be uncomfortable. And that's a negative, you know, feedback for your brain. And so you're like, Oh, well, even if I felt like having sex, even if I had five seconds to have sex, like I'm not going to now because that didn't feel very good. You know, so there's a lot of things working against us in that time. And I think honestly, when I'm when my science brain thinks about it, I think it's evolutionary, right? It may be, you know, 1000s of years ago, we were just huddled around that baby, we weren't worried about that. But now that we're in these partnered long term relationships, you know, these are things we have to think about. And so it's important you know, the most important thing about relationships and sex is communication, right? Whenever we go through seasons of life, which we all do, whether it's, you know, the, if you are just for for the very first time having sex, if you've just had a baby and you're trying to get back to being sexually active, if you're experiencing a medical problem or a financial problem or menopause, we need communication during all of those times. And if we're unable to communicate effectively about sex with our partners, then that's really where things start to break down. And so the sooner we can really institute those communication tactics, uh, the better. And I think, you know, we, we sometimes lack that language. And so that's a huge part of what we do, too, is teaching appropriate language, offering sample scripts about how to talk to your partner during these times. Um, you know, because it's going to come up no matter what you're, you're, you're going to have to have a conversation about sex at some point in your life with your partner. That's guaranteed. <laughs> yes. I think although it's, it is interesting, the, the six week checkup, that mm-hmm. is something that I always talk about too, in my work physically, like it, we're really actually doing women a disservice by just telling them at six weeks, oh, go ahead and go do whatever exercise you did beforehand. And in the same way, we're kind of doing them a disservice by talking to them about birth control at the six week checkup too, right? Like it it sets this expectation of like, oh, you should be back to normal. You should be ready for sex. You, this is what you need are ready to do now. When in many ways, again, everyone's timing postpartum and hormonal influences are going to be so different person to person that if we can start those conversations and giving people the tools to have those conversations at six weeks that say like, yeah, my doctor said that I'm okay to have sex, but honestly, this does not feel like what I need to be doing right now. That is so powerful for the relationship and for you personally. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's these, you know, I think that's what medicine is not so good at is these nuanced conversations. You know, it's like, yes or no, black or white. Am I cleared? Am I not cleared? And that doesn't really offer women the support that we need or deserve, you know, at that time. Um, So I think that there could definitely be a much more robust sort of, you know, sexuality support after after babies, after menopause, after all these, you know, really, um, really big changes in our lives. I totally agree. Yeah. Just a little more grace in that time. Exactly. (laughs) A lot more grace for ourselves as well. You know what I'm saying? We're like, Oh, I got to get back to that ab work and I got to, you know, get, there's just a lot, there's a lot going on, um, both mentally and physically, and it's tough. It can be really, really hard. And so I think you're exactly right. That grace from others to ourselves and also from ourselves to ourselves. 
for sure. Yeah, and and not feeling like anything's wrong with you when you don't feel that feeling at that time. I know for me, especially with my first, it really was this sense of my identity shifted in such a way that I was I was just so focused on being a mother and and being attending to that baby that the thought of being intimate and like all of that just was it was so far from my thoughts and to know that that's very normal is just a lovely thing to to be prepared for <laughs> absolutely i think that's exactly right can you share with us about the relationship between arousal and desire in women? This was a video that I watched on on your app, and I think it's fascinating. I think so many of us think that they should just feel desire. They should just want to have sex, but that isn't the way that it works for many women. So can you share how it does work? This is one of my favorite nuggets that I think can really be life-changing, truly. Totally, yeah. And I just want it to be like, I want everyone to know it. So I'm so glad that you asked. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so I will try not to get too, too like, dorked out on this. Nerd out on it. We love to nerd out here. <laughs> okay, so in the original model of sexual response, um, basically they were, this is Masters and Johnson in like the 1960s. They were asking people to their lab and they observed them having sex. And then they literally wrote down the order in which things happened. So they noticed arousal, um, orgasm, plateau, and resolution. And then about 10 years later, somebody was like, huh, where does desire go? And they were like, oh, it probably goes before. And they just like tacked it on before because that, that seems reasonable. And so, and that's great. We got to start somewhere. But, and that's how it existed. That's how the sexual response, you know, cycle existed for about 40 years. And that's how it was, you know, accepted. So in the year 2000, Rosemary Basson, who's a sex researcher, was like, hey, this doesn't like resonate with the women that I talked to. And she came up with this new circular model of response, which shows that actually for most women, arousal often comes before desire. And that is so powerful for so many women because we think, oh, if I'm not sitting here like typing or like on this podcast thinking like random sexual thoughts something is wrong with me. And that's absolutely untrue, right? What what most women experience is that they are exposed to something that makes them feel aroused, whether this is the smell of their partner or a movie that has a sex scene in it, or maybe reading erotica. But also another one is having sex. So sometimes you can have sex to feel aroused, or you can read an erotic novel to feel aroused. And we can utilize this knowledge to act as an aid or a tool or a medical recommendation. So if you have a goal of feeling more desire, and you know that for you, arousal comes before desire, then you can seek out the things that you need to make that goal happen. And I just think that can be so powerful and so normalizing, like we were talking about earlier, that if you don't have what we call spontaneous desire, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't need a medicine. You don't need a therapist. You don't need a divorce. You know, you don't need a new partner. You need to maybe seek out some things that arouse you first. And that is completely and totally 100% the majority of women. And that's great and fine and amazing. I love that. I think I agree. I think that that is just like mind blowing information that we all should know that if we can give ourselves stimuli to feel aroused, right. well, then we're going to be more interested in doing it. it. It just completely shifts, I think, what we all have been told to think Absolutely. about how we will want to have sex. Well, exactly. And that's because most of the you know sexual models are based on men and, and they don't pertain to women. And so it's time for us to 
we need to continue to disseminate how most men work, but we also need to disseminate how, how this works for women. And we need to give women permission to say, if you want to stay in a long-term monogamous, thriving sexual relationship, it's okay to seek these things out. It doesn't mean anything about you or about your partnership or anything like that. And this model is completely acceptable. So yeah, I'm, I think that's awesome. That is awesome. And so does that also relate to the use of like tools, like vibrators and things like that? It definitely can. I mean, so more than 50% of women own vibrators. There's nothing wrong with it. Vibrators oftentimes will help in many circumstances. Okay. There's a lot of things to clear up here. You know, I have a few soap boxes. If you I love it. Keep going. <laughs> men in the app. But okay. So here's another big, um, sort of difference between men and women. So, right, men's most reliable route to orgasm is intercourse, so penis and vagina sex, and women's most reliable route to orgasm is clitoral stimulation. In fact, there's differences in studies between 87 and 95% of women's most reliable route is clitoral stimulation. And so when we are in a partnered relationship and men are having twice as many orgasms as women, that's a problem and can definitely lead to low sexual desire, right? Like why that is a true chore. I just did all your laundry and I just did all my family's dishes. And now you're going to have twice as many orgasms as me. Like that's not going to work long-term. So we have to remember to prioritize women's orgasms and that's great. However you want to do that. If it's through clitoral, like manual stimulation with your or your partner's hand, if it's through oral sex, if it's with a vibrator, doesn't really matter. It doesn't mean something's wrong, something's broken. Once again, it's normal behavior for women. And it can help you to be more interested in sex if you're getting all of these emotional and physical benefits from, you know, having as many orgasms as your partner. So that's really the conversation. I think vibrators are great and fine and nobody needs to be ashamed or nervous to have one because it can help you attain that goal of what we call orgasm equality. We're all about it. You can have more too. Totally. <laughs> go beyond. Keep on going. Yeah, we don't have to, it doesn't have to be so equal all the time. Again, I think just being aware that the way we achieve orgasm is different between men and women. And basically all people talk about are the way that men have it. And it's not extra for women to have an orgasm. It's not foreplay. It's not, you know, whatever, all, you know, whatever, whatever, all the ways that we think about it traditionally, it should be sort of part of the sexual experience. And sometimes that involves changing the sexual script. You know, sometimes couples get into a routine where this is what they do. This is the order in which they do it. This is the sort of our go-to. And sometimes it ta- it requires a shift in the way that you're thinking about things so that you can get what you want out of the sexual relationship that you're in. This raises another question for me about the difference between men and women and like our cyclical nature of desire, right? Because we obviously females are on this monthly cycle mm-hmm. of our, our menstrual cycle. And I know for me, there's a very predictable increase in desire as I approach ovulation and a very predictable decrease as I approach my period. But men aren't on that cycle. They are on a more of a daily cycle, right? And so having that awareness of that cycle could be very helpful too. Can you just speak a little bit to that as well? Totally. Yeah. So evolutionarily, you know, we, the hormones that increase our interest in sex peak around the time of ovulation for, so we can have more babies, right? Cause that's what it's all about. Clearly. Right. Um, <laughs> so that is a very natural occurrence. One we hear often. Um, and, you know, just once again, requires communication. Like I'm sure, you know, most partners, especially if you're, 
in a relationship where one partner has a higher sexual drive and then the other has a lower, the person who has the lower sexual drive should take every advantage of when they are feeling interested, right? And communicate that clearly and say, hey, this is the pattern. And y'all can, you can even plan that. We at Rosie talk a lot about even scheduling sex that can be so liberating for couples because the woman doesn't have to, or the lower desire partner doesn't have to always be worried every time her partner touches her, like, oh, he wants me to have sex. You know, it can be like, oh, this is an authentic touch. I know we're having sex Monday and Wednesday. I can seek out the arousal tools I need on those days and I'm in control of it rather than just this constant cycle of, you know, um, the higher desire partner initiating and then the lower desire partner saying no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. Eventually that gets us into the cycle where the higher desire partner stops initiating because their feelings are hurt, you know? And if we were in that position, I mean, if I were like initiating all the time and my partner, my husband was saying, no, I would get my feelings hurt. I would definitely like what's wrong, you know, what's wrong. And our partners, our partners have the same experience. So, you know, if there are times during the month where, you know, reliably, you're going to be having more interest, then let's, let's, put something on the calendar so that we can take full advantage of that. And communication is a big piece of that. Once again, we definitely know the cycle in my house. (laughs) It's just so much easier to go with the natural flow, the ebb and flow of interest. I mean, obviously all the other tools are helpful too, but when you have that naturally increased desire, like go with it, ride the wave. Totally. And you know, it's something, it's very interesting because when you get in a pattern of low desire and your brain gets really far away from the sexual response cycle at all, we forget how good it feels to experience pleasure, how good it feels to be physically connected with our partner. And sometimes it takes re-entering that cycle to remember all those positive benefits. So I would encourage women, it's uh, Dr. Lori Mintz worked with us to create some content in the app. She's an amazing sex therapist. She's in Florida and has written two really good books, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex and Becoming Clitorate. And she's a major content contributor to the app. And she said, she um, made an analogy one time that sometimes women are so socially trained to turn off our, our thoughts about sex that if something passes through our mind, we automatically change the radio station because we're like, oh, like that's not appropriate. But I would say just like you were, you were mentioning that if you have a thought that you try to stay on that station, that was Lori's advice. Try to understand what that, where that thought's coming from. Like create the scene in your mind, really build the little spark of a thought up into this bigger story that you can take with you throughout your day and maybe to your partner later. So if you're experiencing increased desire during ovulation and you've spent a lot of time shutting out those thoughts or feelings, stay on that station a little bit longer and see if you can take that to your partner later that day. Yeah. I I also, I joke about this too, because I also experience this very cyclical, like feeling about my own body. And like, I I am loving myself when I am near ovulation. And it's like, I can, I can get myself worked up and feeling good just by like appreciating and being in my body in that time of the month too. That's awesome. I'm a very cyclical creature. (laughs) I love it. I love that you're so aware of it too. That's awesome. But I think that can actually work for a lot of women too. And you know, there's a lot of advice out there around like buying lingerie and stuff like that. But I think there is something to that because when you can really feel good in your own skin, whether or not, I mean, we've all whatever got things we would love to, you know, tweak. But that's not the point. The point is appreciating where you are in the moment, this partnership that you've developed, the life that you've created, and really celebrating that. And so in that same sort of vein of positivity, if you can find something that that you can put on physically 
that represents, you know, that you are a sexual being and you want to connect in this way with your partner, oftentimes it can do that same thing for women and really show them, them show women themselves in a different light, you know, much like you're describing. So it is something that I think has a lot of value to it, even though it's a little bit cliche, you know, in pop culture, I think that really it can work. Absolutely. Yeah. And if not lingerie, something that you find. Whatever it is. You look amazing. And yeah, whatever it is. Exactly. Okay. So we need to talk about sex before dishes too. Yay. It's a hashtag. (laughs) It's a hashtag. Yeah. So tell us, what is this all about? Sex before dishes. Well, really it's about, you know, the philosophy of like, if you were to sit down and write down, and I've done this, I do this regularly and it's life changing for me, honestly, to write down like your goals for your life when you're 80, right? What are your goals for your life? And I think that amongst women, especially who have families, it's, they're pretty consistent. It's the health, you know, and, and sort of cohesiveness of your family and maybe the health and cohesiveness of your long-term relationship, right? We wouldn't put, oh, clean, clean kitchen, like spotless laundry room, you know, like organized closets, we would put like those really meaningful things that we'll carry with us. And so if we mean that, then we have to practice that, right? We cannot let the busyness of our everyday life, which for all of us, the list never ends, right? Just as soon as you cross something off, something else pops up. We cannot let those mundane everyday tasks like dishes, get in the way of these really important prioritized um, sort of bigger picture items like our relationship. And so my challenge really to women everywhere is like, or couples really, you know, all this, all these tasks. And so dishes is just representative of that come after these really important priorities. And so if, if your long-term relationship is one of those, then you've got to have sex before you do the dishes. And that's just the way it is, right? Because we're really tired after we've done all those dishes and all that laundry. And the last thing we want to do is add another task to the list. We want to be done. We want to like relax. And so you just got to flip it around and like have sex before you do all that boring stuff so that you've got energy left to come to your partner with enthusiasm and positivity and a real intention for connectedness. Yeah, because it's okay to do the dishes really tired. Yeah. Or just not even do them. Just do them the next day. I don't know. Like, Right. And I do want to say that you have three kids. Like you're not saying this as like, oh, just do it, you know, before the dish. Like you have three kids. This is a real thing. But I I think that point of having to prioritize, there's that analogy. Have you ever heard that one where there's like a jar and there's big rocks? You know what I'm talking about? Mm -mm. No, but I do, do tell. Basically, you you take this big jar and you think about what your like main goals, like you're talking about the things you want to happen when you're 80. Those are the big rocks. And then there's also sand, which are like all the little tedious things dishes. that have to happen in the day. Exactly. Dishes. Yeah. If you fill the jar up with sand first, there's no room for the big rocks. Mm-hmm. It just fills it up. But if you put the big rocks in first and then you pour the sand in, all the rocks fit in there. The sand still fits in there, but you've now got the things that really matter to you. Yay. I think I mixed, mixed my metaphors a little bit there, but you get it. I love it. I'm going to look it up after this. That's, a, that's exactly the same thing. So that's amazing. You know, I find in my work very often when women are, when their body feels like it has betrayed them in some way, they will kind of dissociate from their mm-hmm. body. They become this like head right. that's just walking around disconnected from their body. 
And I think that there's so many parallels to that and to sexual desire too. It's like if we we get into this point where maybe we are cringing, we're like, oh, please don't touch us. We don't want to do this right now because we're so tired and we're so exhausted. We can almost shut ourselves off from even recognizing and acknowledging that we are a sexual being with Mm -hmm. desires. And I just love all of the little approaches that you have built into Rosie to really start to open that relationship back up between women and their desire because it's a relationship. It is. It totally is a relationship. And I think another piece of that is that when we feel sort of maybe bad about ourselves or our bodies, or like you said, our body has betrayed us, I think a lot of women lose the thought or the knowledge that they deserve pleasure right? Mm. That they, that maybe because of the way that they feel about their body, that they no longer deserve pleasure, the way that it functions or the way that it looks or the way that they feel that they're not worthy of pleasure or they're not worthy of their partner sort of, you know, looking at them or touching them in the way that they once did. And that is where, you know, we're all wrong. That is absolutely untrue. And our partners don't feel that way. Our partners want to provide pleasure to us. And so I think there's a lot to that permission and that recognition of worthiness, that we still are as worthy as we always were, and that we owe that to ourselves and to our relationships in order to feel that. But that can be a little, that's a big transition and can be a little bit painful to get from A to B making those realizations. So we try to support women on that journey, just like you do. Yeah, I love it. You do a great job. And will you just tell a little bit about what people can find on Rosie? Yeah, absolutely. So Rosie is an app that you can download on your phone. Um, It's available for free. And there's really four main components. So the first are a library of completely free educational videos. And it's basically when you're going through the onboarding process, you answer a series of questions, which is a um, standardized sort of medical questionnaire that we would use in my office. And it curates the content in the Rosie app. So for example, if you're postpartum and you're having pain with sex, you're going to get different information than a patient who is menopausal and has depression. So all the content is curated based on those answers in the first, what we call sexual wellness score. And then there's a library of romantic and erotic short stories, which is also an evidence-based intervention for low sexual desire. Those stories are customizable. Some of our users are uncomfortable reading erotica, which we're there to serve our users. We don't really, it doesn't matter to me. You know, I just want to do the best by our users. So if you're, if this is sort of your first time reading erotica, you can, you can choose one flame which is romantic, like the notebook, and maybe even like married, like if you want like the the tamest stories ever, we got you. If you're like next level erotica, we've also got you. So really, we want to meet our users where they are and um, really help them to kind of expand their mind when it comes to thinking about sex, thinking about fantasy. And these interventions are evidence based um, and shown to improve desire. The third area is a library of um, self-help sessions or classes that were made by psychologists and other medical doctors. And we focus on lots of different topics, reigniting passion with your partner, understanding desire, understanding pleasure. Um, We just released a new class for cancer survivors about, you know, uh, thriving sexually during and after cancer. And we're, we're actually doing a ton of content work around that this year. I'm so excited about all the work that we're doing there. And it's based on feedback from our users, things that they need. Um, and then the fourth most most recent section that just la- launched is the community. And this is sort of the realization of my dream that 
that my patients, these users are not my patients, but just generally women could connect about these issues, right? And they could share their experiences and know that they were not alone, know that they were not broken. Everybody experiences these, these issues during different seasons of their lives and that there are other women just like them out there um, looking for and finding help. So that's Rosie in a nutshell. I love it. Yeah. And I've been on there checking it out and there it's just an extremely useful resource. So I do think everyone should check it out. Do you have anything else that you feel like you want to leave the women with before you go? Oh my gosh. Well, I am just so thankful for this opportunity. I'm so glad that now all your listeners know how common sexual dysfunction is and that we are all going to go through seasons of life where we're going to need help or have questions. I think the most foundational thing that we can do is start with a really good sex education knowledge, right? We need to know that our external genitalia is called a vulva and not a vagina. And we need to know that most women get pleasure from clitoral stimulation and that sexual concerns and questions can be readily answered. And if you have, or if you're having problems, please check out Rosie, please talk to your healthcare team, please raise these questions with your friends, because the more conversation, honest conversation that we can have about it, the better we will all be in the end. And we're working super hard to change the way that the medical education system works to get our users better access to these educational and behavioral resources, and then also to connect our users with mental health and medical professionals who specialize in female sexual health so that we can be a really comprehensive you know, answer to all of the things that women sort of need and are struggling with. So I appreciate the opportunity to kind of share that message and all the work that you do too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that that point too about the really speaking to your medical professional and if you feel like you are being not heard or is someone who maybe doesn't have the right specialty right. to to be able to seek out someone else. You you aren't always with the right person. Absolutely. And that's okay. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, you're not going to hit a home run every time. And that's okay. I think I think there is something really too patient provider fit. And um, that's, I mean, it, we're the same, like providers are the same way. So I, uh, I think that's absolutely right. If you're not getting, if you're not feeling heard, if you're not getting what you need, then you just got to be your own advocate. And that's unfortunately the way our healthcare system works, but that's okay. I mean, as the worst thing is if you sort of, you know, take that and then don't ever get any help, that's kind of the worst outcome. So I would just keep asking, keep finding there are people who really care about this and who know a lot about it for sure. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Yay, you too. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Rise Rooted. You can find all the links mentioned in today's show at our website, brbyoga.com, as in be right back. And if you're looking for support to heal your post-baby body, please head to our website. There you'll find our courses for core, pelvic floor, and hip health, as well as free masterclasses and blog posts designed to teach you how to feel your best in your post-baby body. And yes, that even applies to you if you had your baby 30 years ago. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or posting a screenshot of today's episode to Instagram. Doing so makes my day and helps other moms find the show. Thanks so much for being here. Till next time.